Imagine for a moment that you're standing in anywhere USA at the edge of a wide circle, a traffic circle. Two busy lanes of traffic curve around the circle in front of you, and highways stretch out in four different directions. A McDonald's squats squarely to your right. There's a Wendy's on your left. And in the middle, what appears to be the world's least interesting island. A boring patch of weedy grass surrounded by oceans of pavement. But let's grab a botanist. Really interesting. Dash across the road. There's no crosswalk. I got it. I think right now. Yeah. And take a closer look. You know, it has the structure of a short grass prairie. It looks like something you'd see uh, on the high plains of Montana or eastern Colorado. There's at least 20 different higher plant species out there. At least 20. I'm Sam Evans Brown, and this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Today, another edition of 10 by 10, where we take you on a journey to a 10 by 10 plot and uncover the secrets in spaces you'd never think to look. This time, we look for signs of extraordinary life at the center of an ordinary traffic circle. So honestly, if I were driving past a flat, treeless traffic circle and I said, hey, what's that stuff growing there? You'd say something like, it's It's called called grass, grass, Sam. Sam. Big Big whoop. But I'm here to blow your mind with some grass facts. Now, the human branch of the tree of life, the hominids, has seven species. But grasses have 12,000 species. There are pretty grasses, gross grasses, tall grasses, golfy grasses, sea grasses. Grass, it's not just for lawns. And so while you might just see grass, our botanist, Tom Lee, sees multitudes. First and foremost, the weeds. Uh, mainly crabgrass. There's some quackgrass and the weed. The common ragweed over there, which causes... Crabgrass, quackgrass, and that old standby. Oh, look, dandelion. I didn't, this is not on my list. I didn't see this yesterday, but this is... Then there's the pretty stuff. The stuff you'd probably call wildflowers but can be more accurately described as broadleaf herbs. Brown-eyed Susans, and there's some kind of a coreopsis right here. And there's Cor- What's a coreopsis? Wow, I missed this too. This is <laughs> butter and eggs, Linaria vulgaris. There are even a few plants that you might find at your farmer's market. This is a species called wintercress, also known as yellow rock. It's not native, but it has these rather fleshy, succulent leaves, which I believe you can put in a salad. I wouldn't put these in a salad, but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe after a lot of washing. After a lot of washing, yeah. And there is plenty of grass, like grass grass. Well, I didn't see this yesterday. This is a little blue stem. In fact, this is the grass that does grow on the high plains. This is a native North American grass that uh, would be a, a dominant species in the midgrass prairie of Nebraska and, and um in Kansas and on up into the Dakotas. And I'm surprised to see that here, but there it is. So how did a little piece of Nebraska, miles and miles of earth and blue sky, little bees buzzing around, the proverbial home on the range, the actual place where the buffalo roam, how did a miniature version of this bucolic habitat find its way here? 
Lee estimates that of the 20 to 25 species that he could see on that traffic circle, only about six or seven of them were intentionally planted. The rest somehow crossed this concrete moat on their own. Isn't that kind of remarkable? It is. It is remarkable. Um, some of them blew in on the wind. The fleabanes like, and the dandelion have those little uh, parachutes that carry them uh, on a breeze. But um, then there are seeds uh, like those of the evening primrose, which are small little barrel-shaped things that really aren't dispersed by wind at all. But my guess is they're carried on the bodies of vehicles on a rainy day with some mud splattered up on the side, driving through here, hitting a puddle. The seeds are washed off and sent flying into the center of the circle, and they germinate and grow. So far, if we're looking for plant life in unexpected places, we're doing pretty well. But what about animals? As far as I could see, there were no cute little rabbits munching on the grass, no coyotes munching on the rabbits, pretty much just plants growing peacefully, quietly. Well, think again, because I've got one little word for you. Nematodes. If nematodes, if we're talking about them in people, parasites of people, heartworm in dogs, those are nematodes. Uh, people don't like to talk about them, you know. But if you look at them in soil, they're, they're pretty cool. That's Diana Wall, a nematode expert and biology professor at Colorado University. And she's here to introduce us to the secret world of soil microbiology. I got into it because I think it's one of the most fascinating areas of unknown uh, on the planet. Nematodes, by the way, are little roundworms, many of them smaller than an eyelash. And soils are teeming with them. Soils, in fact, are teeming with all sorts of crazy stuff. We know now that almost every phylum, every major group of life above ground is much reduced below ground. It still may be represented in the soil, but it's going to be at a much smaller size. Remember the food web you used to study in grade school? The owl eats the shrew, that eats the grasshopper, that eats the leaf. You remember. Most food webs go no further than plants, but there's a whole nother food web, complete with tiny equivalents of herbivores and predators happening right beneath your feet. Yeah, it's a jungle. It's just a jungle. Or you could just figure out it's a factory and say we're... We're all trying to turn out uh, every car that's ever been made in under one city block. I mean, it's, they're bumping parts and they're moving around and they're passing things off. Okay, so maybe you've been thinking, weeds, microorganisms, boring. But let's picture this soil food web on a human scale. Imagine for a second that you're down in the soil of the traffic circle. Here, imagine the smallest single-celled organism is about the size of a basketball. If that's how big a bacteria is, now let's think of the biggest organism in the soil food web, an earthworm. They're kind of like the whales of the soil. Now picture those tiny nematodes, the latronema. Normally, you can just barely see it. It's about a thousand microns long, which is like five or six times the width of a human hair. If the earthworm is the length of a college campus, the latronema is now the size of a school bus. 
And at the head of this nematode, you'll see something out of a horror movie. A giant mouth with a circular row of gnashing teeth. But that's not all. There are parasitic nematodes that have what look like hypodermic needles sticking out of their mouths. They use it to puncture plant roots like some kind of vegetarian vampire worm. Well, I'll name another one, a laponema that looks like it's got little elephant ears. It's a nematode that's got a roundworm with little elephant ears is what it looks like to me. And then you start looking at others and they look like they have crowns. The very differences in morphology of what things look like. Yeah, this is deep sea. This is... This is Outer space, this is science fiction. This world may be small, but it's crowded. Like, really crowded. Normally, in a garden variety soil, in a handful, you would have on the order of 200 billion or so uh, organisms in the soil. With a bee. 200 billion with a bee in a handful of soil. The next time you're digging in the garden, think about that. There are around 28 times the number of organisms in every handful of soil than there are humans living on planet Earth. And maybe of those 100 billion, you know, several thousand, tens of thousands of different species. That, by the way, is our third and final scientist for today, UNH soil microbiologist Sarita Frey who's here to tell us whether our dry, isolated little traffic circle is just as populated with life as a handful of garden soil. To find out, we'll need to take a few samples. Soils are very heterogeneous, very highly variable from one place to another. Highly variable even from, from here to 20 feet away? From here to there. Like two feet away? Or even two centimeters away. All right. She rips out a handful of grass to expose the dirt and then takes a tulip bulb planter and grinds it down into the soil. Already I can tell it's pretty sandy. Oh my gosh, it's just dust under there. Yeah. So it's really disheartening. The next thing that if our aim here is to amaze you with just how much life there is in a traffic circle, this is not a good sign. A lot of soil organisms are technically aquatic animals. They want to live where it's nice and wet. And right now, this region is going through a pretty bad drought. But just as lots of woodland critters hibernate through the winter, many microorganisms have adapted to live under even the harshest environments. Here's Diana Wall. You can put them under liquid nitrogen. You can put them in a freezer. You could keep them on your shelf for, I don't know, 60 years. I think they've kept some nematodes and just dried in a sack of, on a shelf in a lab. And then you bring them back into the lab and say hey, here's some water, and you can watch them come back to life. After we get our samples, we run back across the road and head over to Frey's lab. She pops them into mason jars, adds a little water to bring the little buggers back to life, and then leaves it in the awesomely named environmental chamber. Like a, like a fridge, but whatever you want. Which is basically a big, sterile, walk-in cooler that's not actually cold. For this soil, I'm thinking we'll... Uh, leave it in for uh, a couple of days, and then we'll come back and measure the amount of carbon dioxide that has accumulated. Just like us, microorganisms breathe in oxygen and exhale CO2. So we estimate how many critters there are just by analyzing the air in the jar. I don't know if you want to do this, or you want me to do it and talk you through it. Should or... I? Can I do it? Sure. Okay, well, uh, okay, all right. For comparison, uh, we yeah. put another sample in the chamber, one that Sarita took from her husband's backyard garden. 
that's pretty easy. I feel like I could do this at home, except for the environmental chamber part. You could. Three days later, we brought both samples into the lab, extracted some of the air, and tested it for CO2 using an infrared gas analyzer. And lo and behold... It's like the lead traffic circle might have more. I, I think you're right. Our sandy traffic circle samples showed more microbial activity than the fresh garden soil. So it's, it's more than twice as much at the Lee Traffic Circle. Wait, was that what you were expecting? Or were you expecting your husband? No, I was not expecting that. Good job, Lee Traffic Circle. Just to be clear, we're probably reading too much into these results. So normally we would have multiple replicates, so we would have, you know, ideally five or six jars. But still, in your face, garden soil. Come on, it's hard to not root for the underdog, right? Soil is considered one of the most diverse habitats on the planet, even, you know, potentially more diverse than a rainforest in terms of the organisms that live there and the complexity of these relationships that you're talking about. And we just know so little about about them. Here's the thing. Even our rainforests have countless species that we have yet to discover. And those are big enough that we can walk around inside of them and look at the species in jars. So just imagine that under your feet, it's like there's a vast and endless rainforest that's too small to see. Tens of thousands of species in a handful of soil, potentially, and less than 1% to 10% of those are known to science. Less than 1% to 10% are known to science. And the crazy thing about this is all of those different species that we know nothing about, they're everywhere. Here in New Hampshire, in a traffic circle, we've got our own crazy world. Down in the Amazonian rainforest, they've got theirs. Diana Wall has even found soil microbes under the ice of Antarctica. So remember, next time you're driving on a boring stretch of highway and you round a dusty patch of overgrown grass, remember that the grass growing there may have hitchhiked for miles on the mud flaps of tractor trailers. Remember that there in the dirt, there are microscopic predators with no names, hunting for a prey that no human has ever seen. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby and me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Maureen McMurray, Logan Shannon, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. Special thanks this week to our UNH experts Tom Lee and Sarita Frey for being willing to run across two lanes of traffic for this story. Sarita's crew is actually doing a DNA analysis of our soil microbes, but that's not something you can just do in a couple of days, so we'll let you know what they find once we get our results back. Also, if you're interested in learning about the difference between roundabouts and traffic circles, go to roundaboutusa.com. Quick primer, it apparently has something to do with yield at entry, deflection, and, quote, flare, unquote. Or if you'd rather just see pictures of us hanging out at our traffic circle, go to outsideinradio.org and share your own traffic circle fauna pics with us on Twitter. We're at Outside In Radio. Just don't risk your life getting them. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music this episode came from Poddington Bear and Ikimashu Aoi. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio.